the name of the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In what is one of the most intense scenes of Fyodor Dostoevsky's great Russian novel, The Brothers Karamazov, and that's saying something because there are many, Ivan Karamazov, the skeptic, offers a story, a poem as he calls it, to his pious brother Alyosha. The story occurs within this long conversation the two brothers have about God and evil and freedom and faith. And so questioning whether there can really exist a just and loving God, Yvonne tells a story about a grand inquisitor. In 16th century Spain, he says, Christ returns to the earth, begins walking the streets of Seville, and attracts a crowd of people as he begins to heal the sick and perform miracles. So Christ is then arrested by leaders of the Spanish Inquisition and imprisoned. And then one night is visited by a very powerful cardinal, the Grand Inquisitor. Christ silently listens as the cardinal begins to lecture him as to why he simply cannot allow Jesus to continue his ministry. Your ideas were fine, the cardinal suggests, and thank you for founding this religion in the first place, but you were never really cut out for leading this whole thing. We'll take it from here. Thank you very much, he says. We have no need of you now. Jesus' ministry, in fact, would at this point only hinder the mission of the church, the cardinal reasons, which is to unify barbarous and brutish humans under a common rule, provide for their needs, make them relatively happy and safe and comfortable in this life. And so the cardinal condemns Jesus, citing Jesus' failure in the desert when confronted by Satan to understand how societies really work, what human beings are really like, and what is required to save them from themselves. There are three powers, he says, three unique forces upon the earth capable of conquering forever by charming the consciences of these weak men for their own good. And these forces are miracle, mystery, and authority. But in the Gospels, when presented with each of these, the miracle of stones turning to bread, the mystery of divinity proven through God's intervention and preservation, and the authority to rule the nations of the earth, when offered these by Satan, Jesus refuses. But we figured it out now, the cardinal says. In your refusal was the desire that humans might be free. And so your rejection of coercion and charm and mystification was so that humanity might love you in freedom. But look where giving them freedom got you. It put you on a cross. And so rather than freedom, the cardinal says, what humanity needs is salvation and security, saving from themselves from their freedom. And that's what we do, assures the cardinal. We save humanity by taking away their freedom, by giving them bread. Dostoevsky's story of the Grand Inquisitor is is provocative for any number of, of reasons, but I think it's also illuminating 
is I wonder if you've ever considered the story of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness as a story about freedom. Because according to Dostoevsky, that is exactly what this episode in the Gospels is all about. In the first sense, this is a story about Jesus's refusal to accept Satan's offers in order to secure the obedience and fidelity of humanity by compulsion. So refusing bread, power, a miraculous manifestation of his divinity, Jesus chooses fasting, weakness, concealment of his divine power, and all so that those who would follow him would do so out of love, out of desire, out of freedom. But the story of Jesus' temptation is also a story about freedom in a second sense, enjoining humanity in hunger, in political powerlessness, and infinitude, Jesus paves the way for true freedom amidst the many perils and dangers and snares and infirmities and temptations of human life. He is tempted but not compromised. Satan endeavors to capture him, to possess him, but Christ resists and subdues his power. And so Christ opens the way of freedom, breaking the chains of sin and evil and Satan and darkness and paving a path of liberation and love. And the great mystery of his teaching is this. To be really really and truly free is not to be strong, not to be possessed of power and status and influence, not to have mastery over the contingency and frailty of our humanity. Rather, freedom, Jesus shows, is found actually in our inhabiting the space of dependence on God and God alone. And this, incidentally, is what Lent is all about. And no doubt why we read on this first Sunday in Lent the story of Jesus's temptation. Because both Jesus's temptation and the Lenten season, both his fasting and trial and ours, are about coming to understand what it means to rest in the power and provision and security of God alone. It's why we give up things in Lent, why we fast. We declare to God and to ourselves, I don't need this in order to be happy, in order to be fulfilled, in order to be free. All I need, O Lord, is you. St. Luke begins his account of Jesus' temptation in a very interesting way with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has been quite active in Luke's gospel up to this point, filling John the baptizer and his mother Elizabeth, coming upon Mary, the mother of Jesus, inspiring Zechariah's song and Simeon's prophecy, and of course, descending upon Jesus at his baptism. And now, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he will fast and face temptation. And he does so for 40 days 
Jesus fasts. And this is not a two small meals a day kind of fast. It's not a fish-only Lenten diet. No, for 40 days he eats nothing, probably doesn't even drink anything. And so Luke reports the kind of obvious at the conclusion of this time, just to make sure we get it, and when the days were ended, he was hungry. Now Luke's point is not just to state the obvious, but to remind us, to remind his readers that the divine Son of God endures this trial, this testing, not as an angelic-like creature, but as a human. And like us, when we fast, he gets hungry. His stomach growls. He probably gets irritable and impatient and annoyed and distracted. And yet he persists in prayer and solitude and fasting and so charts a path for our Lenten journey as well. Through these 40 days of Lent, we enter into Jesus' own time in the wilderness, his own fasting, his own dependence on the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, just as we know all too well, when the hunger really sets in, when we're feeling weak and vulnerable, unable to think clearly, when we're most likely to act rashly and against wisdom, that's when temptation strikes. The devil approaches Jesus, tempting him first with that most basic and primal desire for food, for bread. I was one who recently spent some time in France strolling the Parisian streets and taking in the sublime smell of fresh baguettes and I should say rarely refusing to indulge the impulse to immediately buy and consume one of some of the most delectable bread I've ever encountered. Let me just say I appreciate the allure of Satan's temptation here in a new way. It's a very strategic first move. If you are the son of God Command this stone to become bread, the devil says. And while the appeal of bread to an empty stomach is no doubt compelling, what's at stake here in this temptation is not simply that Jesus break his fast. Something deeper. Note how Satan begins the first and the third temptations here. If you are the son of God. The temptation to miraculously transform stones into bread is not really the issue. After all, Jesus transforms water into wine and performs miracles with loaves and fishes. So no, what's what's at stake, what the devil is tempting Jesus toward is an escape from the fragility of human nature, of his humanity. The implication is that as the Son of God, he need not be subject to the vulnerabilities of human need and necessity. He's God, after all. He can make his own bread. Quick fix to the dependence that human beings have on those from whom we receive bread. The hands that plant seeds and harvest the crop and mill grain and knead dough and bake bread dependence on God who sends rain and sun upon the earth bringing forth seed for sowing and bread for eating as the prophet Isaiah says or to refer again to Dostoevsky's grand inquisitor 
the power to miraculously provide bread to secure endless food amidst the precarities and contingencies of human life, well, is this not a sure and certain route to the establishment of God's universal kingdom on the earth? Command that these stones be made bread, says the inquisitor, and mankind will run after thee, obedient and grateful like a herd of cattle. By accepting the bread, thou wouldst have satisfied and answered a universal craving, a ceaseless longing alive in the heart of every individual human being lurking in the breast of collective mankind. That most perplexing problem, whom or what shall we worship, says the Grand Inquisitor. Yet Jesus refuses. He repudiates the offer and chooses hunger instead of the miraculous. So the devil replies with a second temptation. Showing him all the kingdoms of the world, he says to Jesus, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. Worship me, and it will all be yours, he says to Jesus. And again is proposed a kind of shortcut to the realization of Christ's messianic rule on the earth, one that need not go through the pain of betrayal and suffering and crucifixion and death, one that could be possessed simply by a single act of reverence, a simple bow, a gesture of worship. He could even take it back, say he didn't mean it, but he refuses. Because to realize the end of God's reign through the means of worshiping evil would be to destroy that reign as the rule of God's goodness. Jesus responds with two citations from the book of Deuteronomy that get to this point, only God is to be worshiped. And not even the Messiah is exempt from that most basic duty of God's people. And by asserting this, that no religious or social or political end is so noble as to justify idolatry of any kind, Jesus establishes that worship, worship of the one true God, is the principal task in humanity uh, and, and activity of human life. There is nothing, in other words, that can displace our obligation to worship the Lord God and serve him only. It's what gives life meaning. So finally, the devil launches one last attack, taking Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple and urging him to perform a dramatic act of throwing himself down in order to be rescued by God's holy angels. Again, this would be a sure and certain demonstration of Jesus's messianic identity and divine nature. But note the subtlety here of Satan's provocation, because throwing oneself off the ledge Casting oneself entirely on God's power to save would actually be a kind of radical trust and dependence on God. But at what cost? According to Jesus, a great one, for this would entail a level of presumption 
about God's grace that not even he, the Messiah, possesses. To perform this feat, to establish his messianic identity and divine authority by engaging in a kind of divine showmanship, well, this would be a manipulation of the divine will, twisting God's arm to wrest power from him rather than walking the way of obedience and faithfulness. On every turn, Jesus refuses temptation. Temptations to power, to authority, to miracle, to mystery. And instead, he chooses hunger, powerlessness, fragility. And in doing this, he sets us free. Because Jesus refuses to manipulate, to coerce, to mystify those who would follow him. To establish his kingdom by any other way than by suffering and self-sacrificial love. And that's because Jesus wants from us something so much deeper than simple obedience or loyalty or deference. He wants us to love him. And love cannot be coerced or manipulated or compelled. Love can only be elicited in freedom by revealing the center of one's being in vulnerability and divine self-giving. And for Jesus, this will not happen in the desert, but in Jerusalem, on the cross. So Jesus liberates us to love him in freedom. But he also liberates us to live in freedom because he shows us what free humanity looks like. It looks like him in the wilderness. You see, what he reveals is this. To be most free, we need not power or authority or status. We need not the satisfaction of our many desires for bread, for acceptance, for respect, for sex, for money, for pleasure. We need not even affix to the contingency and fragility and mortality of humanity. We need only one thing to be free, and that is God. And Lent is about coming to understand that. It's why we fast why we give things up, why we contemplate our mortality and death. It's to be free. So on this Lenten road to the cross, in these 40 days, let us follow Jesus on his wilderness way. Let us inhabit his dependence on nothing but God's grace. This Lent by God's grace, let's get free. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.